0: Well, good morning, Peachtree family. I got to say this morning, I miss you maybe more than any morning during this whole crisis because I'm in the sanctuary alone and it is freezing in here today. I need your warm bodies here. In addition to your voices, lifting up in praise to encourage us and to begin to remember what it's like for us to be a community of faith. In the meantime, we'll hang tight. And obviously we're going to use the sanctuary as part of our food initiative to refrigerate uh, some food so that we can use it effectively. I feel like I am a part of that food this morning. I hope it's more comfortable where you are right now. And I want to begin today by telling you a story. Back when I was 25 years old, I didn't have any gray hairs and I was a freshly Mented associate pastor at the First Presbyterian Church of Houston, Texas. The senior pastor of that church was none other than beloved former pastor of this congregation and dear friend, Vic Pence. And it was my second week on the job, and it was one of my first assignments publicly before the congregation, and they had assigned me to do the children's sermon. And they had given me the task of the story of David and Goliath. I may have gone a little bit overboard in my enthusiasm in the retelling. I convinced Vic with much cajoling to stand in the pulpit, to look menacing and to play the role of Goliath. I even took my jacket off and I put it on a little boy to talk about Saul's armor. And when it came time to begin to throw rocks, I knew that we couldn't do that in the sanctuary, but I took five jumbo marshmallows and gave them to five different enthusiastic children And told them on the count of three that they were going to get to throw those at Goliath. Now I counted on the fact that nobody was going to get hurt with a marshmallow as a projectile, no matter how hard you throw it. What I didn't factor into the equation was the fact that six and seven year olds don't necessarily have really great aim and that they tend to get really, really excited when they're told that they can throw things in church. So I counted down three, two, one, and they let those things fly and they went all over the place. And one of them went sailing over Goliath's head to the choir loft behind him where there was a particular soprano, a woman in today's politically correct environment, we would say was happiness- challenged. She looked like she was perpetually sucking on a lemon with the grimace that was on her face. And this marshmallow went flying over Goliath and hit her right in the face. And I'm sitting there watching this happen. And I'm like, that's it. Shortest ministry in the history of the Presbyterian church, a pastor for two weeks and then got ousted by somebody from the choir. Well, it turns out that hidden behind this grimace of an expression was actually a child at heart. And that face began to melt into a smile and she picked up that marshmallow and unlike the little boy who had thrown it before, She had impeccable aim and she hit Goliath right in the back. The story of David Goliath has captured our imaginations for over 3,000 years. It is one of the most famous and most compelling stories in the Old Testament. What you need to know is that this story is far more than a tale about a little guy versus a big guy. This story is not just an underdog story. In fact, if you would be willing to study this story with me and to get into the text and for us to be able to walk through this story together, I think you'll be surprised by what you still have to learn about David and Goliath. And so I want to remind you that we're in the midst of a series of messages that's called Uncertain Times, that life is incredibly unpredictable And God is so reliable. And we're chronicling the journey of following the person of David. We're doing this being reminded that God is still searching, that God is still speaking, that God is still selecting and still sending his people out into the world. That in the midst of all of the uncertainty, there is the faithfulness of our loving God. And we can admit that the time of David was probably even more topsy-turvy, more upheaval and more complicated than even the life that we live right now. In terms of this late bronze era collapse, it was 300 years of chaos and violence and technological advance and political and social uncertainty at the highest of levels. And so we don't have to be alone through this period of uncertainty. We can learn from the life and the story of David at how God is reliable, even in those difficult and dark times. And so today I need to introduce you to the enemy of the story. The enemy during this time in the late bronze era for Israel was not the typical enemies that you heard about when they came into the promised land, the Amalekites and the Hittites and the Jebusites. There was a new enemy that came in, in the 12th century. And this enemy was unlike anything that Israel had ever seen before. I wanna show you a picture of someone in Egypt who had drawn a picture of the Philistines, these strange seafaring people that came from Europe, probably from the Aegean Sea or from kind of Greece, and they were people who were really good at metalwork. They were people who were really good at making ships. And because of their advantages, what they had done is they actually formed fortresses along the coast. I want to show you a picture of what it was like the invasion of the Philistines that took place starting in the 12th century and taking the coastline. So now Israel was hemmed in on all sides from different enemies. And the word Philistine actually means invader. And so what the Philistines would do is they would get, because of their maritime advantage, they would get the kind of along the coast areas and then they would come in and they would attack you. And then they would retreat to their cities that they had built along the coast. And so this was several hundred years of chaos and bloodshed and violence and injustice at the hands of the Philistines. Now, we know that the story of David Goliath is famously taking place in what actually you can go to today. And I want to show you a picture. It's called the Valley of Elah. And in this particular valley, we think we know for the most part where this happened because on the top of one hill, there are some Philistine encampment remains We know that they're Philistine because of the nature of the pottery and that there are pig bones and that with the kosher laws that never would have happened. On the other side of the valley at the top of the hill, there are remains and pottery of an ancient Jewish settlement from God's people in Israel. And so one of the amazing things is history being confirmed by archeology span of the incredible veracity of this story and I want us to dive into it and to experience it and explore it together. And so let's listen to the word of the Lord. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another and with the valley between them, A champion named Goliath, who was from Goth, came out from the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span, which is Hebrew for really, really, really tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor bronze weighing 5,000 shekels, about 125 pounds. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin with a slung on his back. His spear, a shaft, was like a weaver's rod. And its iron point weighed 600 shekels, or about 15 pounds. His shield bearer went ahead of him. And Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why do you come out here and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you are not the servants of Saul?' Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight me and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. The subject of today I wanna put very plainly and clear and that is this, nothing paralyzes quite like fear and nothing gives life quite like faith. The story of David and Goliath is a story of fear and of faith. And today, one of the things that we're going to discover is that faith is the antidote to our fears. In modern psychology, we have a term for what's happening to the Israelites at this point in time. It's called learned helplessness. It's that point where you don't think that anything can be done. It's that point where you think that nothing that you do ever really matters anymore, that you can't make a difference or an impact or change or control or influence anything. And so what we discover in this story is that for over 40 days, the people endure the taunts of Goliath and they are stuck in this cycle of that nothing can be done. And what we're about to discover is that David is about to make the journey from Bethlehem over to the Valley of Elah. He's coming to bring supplies to his brother and to check in on them but that young little David will bring far more than food to this place. He will bring faith to the people of God. Let's continue in the story. Now, Jesse said to his son, David, take this ephah of roasted grain. That's probably about 36 pounds and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. Nothing like bribing the commander of the unit. And see how your brothers are doing and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up the lines, facing each other. And David left his things with the keeper of the supplies and ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath the Philistine, champion from Goth, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. One of the remarkable things about David is that David hears the same things that they've been hearing for over 40 days. And yet David's reaction to it is quite different because David's actually paying attention to what is being said. One of the things that I think that faith does at the very outset is that faith begins with listening. One of the things that we discover about David is that he is paying attention in a way that no one else is in the battle lines. They're no longer really hearing Goliath and his taunts. Only David is able to hear and see what is actually going on in this story and in this moment. As a pastor, one of the many kind of odd jobs of my role is to engage in some counseling. And the most amazing thing that sticks out for me in the counseling appointments that I've performed, particularly for those that are relational, kind of for marriage or trying to help somebody reconcile something, is that what is so absolutely clear to me when I meet with a couple or an individual is absolutely so lost on them. You hear a couple begin to talk, and you can see that the trust and the faith and the confidence and the relationship has eroded. And you can tell that they're no longer treating one another with sensitivity. Instead, they're treating one another with criticism. And you can tell that they are no longer being reliable to one another and following through on what they're supposed to be doing. And you can tell that there is a couple that, that they are no longer doing the very things that they had been doing along the way to nurture and to bring about the love that blossomed in the first place. It's so evident anyone can see it if you have the eyes and the ears of faith. The Bible tells us that faith comes from hearing and that hearing comes from the word of God. And we also learn from scripture that we were also included in Christ when we heard the message of salvation and the gospel of what liberated us. Faith always begins, not as an act of defiance, not as an act of conviction. Faith always begins by listening. And so we see that David hears what's going on. And let's see what happens next. When Eliab, David's older brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at David and asked him, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. And now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same manner. And the men answered him as before. And what David said was overheard and reported to Saul. And Saul sent for David. And David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine." your servant will go and fight him. If the first thing that faith does is is that faith begins with listening, the second thing that faith does is that it activates with courage. It activates with courage. One of the things that we know for sure in this story is that David was the kind of person who was not timid. He was always willing to speak his mind in his heart and he was always willing to back up what he said with action. And so one of the things that David does before he has a plan is that he has this idea, this vision that he will be the one who will be able to go and to fight the giant Goliath. And so David is the kind of person that sometimes takes a step first in faith and then figures out how it's going to be done on the other end. A lot of the times when people come to me and they talk to me about how their faith is floundering and they don't feel like they have any faith, usually the challenge that I give them is to say that you need to do something that's beyond your comfort zone, something that you know that God truly loves for people to do, whether that's to love someone in a whole new way or to begin to reach out to someone or to extend yourself in generosity, in care, in service, whatever it is, if you step out onto that platform, not necessarily knowing how everything's going to work out, you begin to discover that people and resources come with you following along with the courage of activating that moment of faith. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it. He puts it like this. He says, the aim of the person of faith is not to be as comfortable as possible, but to live as deeply and thoroughly as possible, to deal with the reality of life, discover truth, create beauty, and act out love. So many of us think that The goal of life is to be as so comfortable and so secure as possible that it doesn't really, the life that we've constructed doesn't really require faith anymore. And what we need is the moment of courage to be able to light the fire of our faith. Right before the COVID shutdown in March, I went with a team of people over to India and got to spend time with this remarkable woman. Her name was Smita. And Smita was one of the bravest women I have ever met in my life. Not only was she filled with incredible joy, but Smita was the kind of person that would walk confidently through the largest red light district and brothel in Asia, in Calcutta. And she would do so with the ease and the joy as if she was taking a stroll in Piedmont Park. She was such a remarkable woman. As I watched her walk through Calcutta and the streets, at one point I pulled alongside her and I said, Smita, how did you ever decide to do the things that you do to care for the children and the women and the victims of the sex trafficking of this area? And she said, I took the step first and then I figured out how it was to be done right now, many of your faiths might be feeling dormant. And I'm here to tell you that God, through his Holy Spirit, is tugging at your heart and your life to get you to take a step of faith, to act your way into a whole new level of thinking. And let's continue in David's story. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep and When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it and struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. One of the things that David does really well is not just to listen and not just to have courage, but we notice in this part of the story that David grows in his faith with remembering. The Bible talks about how we are called to increase our faith, to exercise our faith, to walk by faith, that faith is kind of seen as a verb. It's an activity, it's something that is done. And the one of the primary ways that we grow in our faith is to make sure that we don't forget. Saul, the armies, the brothers, all of those people there are cowering in fear because they have forgotten how God has been faithful to each and every one of them. And what I love about David's recounting of the faithfulness of God before King Saul is that he's incredibly specific. He's incredibly clear. He's incredibly personal. It's not so much that, yeah, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, God did some really cool stuff during the time of Moses. No. It was, this is what God has done in my life. If your faith feels small and that it's shrinking during this period, one of the first things that you should do is to set aside a particular block of time. It could be five minutes, it could be 15 minutes or even more and sit down with a piece of paper and write down some of the ways that God has been specifically and personally good to you. And then his faithfulness will start to shine and that faith will begin to infuse you with a deeper and stronger faith. And then you're gonna love what happens next. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. And so he took them off and then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. In this part of the story, one of the things that we discover is that David not only begins by listening and activates with courage and grows with remembering, but David partners with wisdom. This is the part of the story that's almost comical. I want to show you a picture of a boy that's kind of like trying on Saul's armor. I mean, this is the part of the story that we absolutely love where it's almost like David is getting to play kind of at a game, but this is not a game and the stakes are real. And this is not some moment of self-expression for David, where, where David's wearing Saul's armor and he's like, I just gotta be me or I gotta do it my way. That's not what's happening at all. David, David puts on the armor and realizes there is no way that this is going to work. This is not how I have learned how to fight. This is not where I've gained my experience and more importantly, his wisdom. And so David uses a particular tool. I want to show you what the Bible means by a sling. This is an example of what a shepherd's sling might look like. David's was probably longer than this. David was adept at the art of being able to throw stones. And here's what you need to know about throwing these kinds of stones. This was not child's play. Some research has been done with different Aboriginal groups and people that have kept some of the traditions of slinging alive. And one of the things that they've discovered is that for people who are really good at this, they can hit a target at up to 100 yards away. And that when they have a really long sling and they're flinging it really far and hard like this, that one of the things they discover that it can have the same impact as shooting with a 44 Magnum. In other words, a friend of mine says David is not the underdog in this story. A friend of mine says that Goliath brought a spear to a gunfight. Malcolm Gladwell is clear that David's not the underdog. He says that David is the one who is actually in the favor here because the battle is artillery as opposed to -to hand-to-hand combat. Now, if David had actually put on the armor taken the really big heavy store, the sword, and drawn near to Goliath with all the courage and the faith and the gratitude that David has, this story would have had a different outcome. But David's faith partnered with his wisdom in order to be able to do this the right way. A lot of people really misunderstand faith as being opposed to things like reason and thinking. And I am here to tell you that we are called to have a thinking kind of faith and that it's supposed to be wise as well as strong. And let's conclude the story. Meanwhile, the Philistine was with a shield bearer in front of him and kept coming closer to David. And he looked at David over and saw that he was a little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. I kind of have a feeling that David had a hand in what was being written there. And he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistines cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give you flesh to the birds and the wild animals. And David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day, The Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistines army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that there is not sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. What an amazing encounter of David using the skill and the strength that he had been given in faith to overcome an enemy of Israel. And this began the journey of God's people being inspired and being given a new form of leadership and life to be able to move forward in faith. And so the last thing that David does here is that faith triumphs with trust. You come at me with sword and spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. This is a woman by the name of Ethel Herr. She is primarily a fiction writer in the Christian realm. And several years ago, Ethel discovered that she had a rare and aggressive form of breast cancer. And that even after the surgeries and the treatments, there came that moment when she realized, as the doctor was very clear, that there was nothing else that could be done. One of her friends asked her, what do you think about your life with God now? To which Ethel said this. As I sought to explain what had happened in my spirit, it all became clear to me. God has been preparing me for this moment He has undergirded me in ways that I've never known before. He has made himself increasingly real and precious to me. He has given to me joy such as I've never known before, even amidst the tears. He has taught me that no matter how good my genes are or how well I take care of my diet and myself, he will lead me on whatever journey he chooses and will never leave me for a moment of that journey. And he planned it all in such a way that step by step, he prepared me for the moment when the doctor dropped the last shoe. God is good. And no matter what the diagnosis or the prognosis or the fearfulness of the uncertainty of having neither, the key to knowing God is good is simply knowing him. And so in November of 2012, surrounded by her husband and her family and the books that she so cherished, Ethel went to be with the Lord. And she did so in that last era of uncertainty for her, knowing what King David knew, that the battle was the Lord's, that you and I can triumph through any difficult situation because of the trust that we have. At the end of the day, faith is not about brash confidence. It's about being able to rely on Almighty God. I don't know if you come to this broadcast today, this moment of worship, and if your life is more paralyzed by fear or if your life is being inspired by faith. But what I wanna tell you is this, the battle that you are going through right now, whether it's an emotional battle, a relational battle, a personal battle, an economic battle, no matter what form the giants may take and the taunts may look like, the battle that you face right now is the Lord's. And if you put your confidence in him, your ultimate victory in the redeemed life and in the gift of eternity is yours. I wanna put this up on the screen as we close here and just ask you if there's a step of faith that you need to take. Do you need to listen? Do you need to take a step? without having it all figured out? Do you need to remember? Do you need to think deeply? Or do you need to lean heavily on the everlasting arms of our great God? Over and over again, David calls God the living God. And I believe that God is alive and here and available to you right now for you to be able to lean upon. And so let's stop being paralyzed by fear and let's come alive with the gift of faith. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, this is not a children's story alone. While it may inspire courage in the young, it is so much more than just an underdog tale. Lord, I pray that for anybody who is stuck and who feels like that they are in a moment of learned helplessness where nothing they do matters and that they can't change anything, Lord, I pray that you will give them a little beachhead of faith amidst the invaders, the Philistines of their life. Lord, the giants loom large in our world and they taunt heavily and speak loudly. But if we have the eyes and the ears of faith, if we're willing to take steps and remember your faithfulness and to use the wisdom that you've entrusted to us, we know that we can triumph through your goodness. And so I pray, God, that you will do all of these things and instill them deep within our souls as we pray in the strong name of Jesus, the living Christ. Amen.